I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 for our time of study in God's Word. Uh, this morning we're doing a series through the Gospel of John, and um, it's been a few weeks, but we're going to be picking up uh, this morning in John chapter 16, uh, verse 16, and my goal this morning is to cover verses 16 through 33, so there's a lot of ground uh, to cover this morning. Yesterday, I, I read an article um, uh, on the internet about the Iowa caucus that is going to be held uh, tomorrow, and the headline read this way, and I quote, on the ballot in Iowa, fear, anxiety, hopelessness, unquote. And that only makes sense, right? In the first place, there are many causes for grave worry in our world today, but we're also uh, in a political season, and it's only going to get crazier when politicians are doing everything that they can to stoke fear and anxiety in our hearts so that we would vote for them to rescue us from those things that cause us fear and anxiety. And if we happen to believe their promises and cast our lot with a particular candidate and they end up losing the election, well, then we can be left feeling quite hopeless. Well, on the ballot in Iowa may be fear, anxiety, and hopelessness, but the title of my sermon today is Toward Joy, Peace, and Courage, because Jesus speaks about all three of these precious commodities in our passage today, and he makes promises to us that, that he has delivered on, showing us that he is infinitely worthy of all of our trust. How many of you would like a little more joy, peace, and courage in your life? Raise your hand. Okay, that's most of us. If you want that, you're going to find these things in rich supply in our text today. Now, as you read John's gospel, as we have been going through it, one of the things that you notice is that chapters 13 through 17 amount to a very long goodbye from Jesus on the Thursday evening of his arrest. And we have spent the last few months studying the things that Jesus has done and the things that Jesus has said to his disciples on this momentous evening. We have seen him wash their feet and then begin teaching them many things to prepare them for his looming death and for the new normal that awaits them on the other side of his death and resurrection, a new normal in which they will have Jesus uh, with the Father in heaven and the Holy Spirit as their helper dwelling inside of them, revealing the Father and the Son to them and empowering their witness as they testify of Christ to the world. As we look at our passage today, uh, it's important for us to remember also that in the coming hours, these disciples 
are all going to be guilty of deserting Jesus. And Peter will deny him three times. On top of that, the one that they will have come to believe in as their Messiah will die an awful death upon a cross at the hands of his enemies. How does a person move forward after that? How do these disciples move forward after such a colossal personal failure and then the death of this one that they have put all of their confidence in as their Messiah? Well, Jesus assures the disciples that their failure and his death will not be the end of the story. In fact, in our passage today, Jesus is going to give to his disciples a vision for the joy and peace and courage that will be theirs on the other side of their failure and his death. And if we listen to Jesus carefully this morning, we can find out how we can have those things too. The way we're going to break down our study of this passage, as you can see on the notes that hopefully you picked up, is five promises from Jesus to prepare his disciples for joy, peace, and courage after their failure and after his death. And the first of these promises is this. Let me say it this way. In a little while... You will not see me. Then in a little while, you will. Observe what Jesus says in verse 16 as he begins with a mysterious saying of sorts. He says, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. When Jesus says a little while and you will no longer see me, he's referring to the moment when he will be taken away from them at his arrest and then crucified and then buried in the ground out of their sight. But his arrest and death and burial will not be the end of the story. Look again at verse 16 where Jesus says, and again, a little while and you will see me. Here Jesus is referring at the least, to his post-resurrection appearances to his disciples when they will be reunited with Jesus and enjoy seeing him on multiple occasions during the 40 days before his ascension to the Father, after his resurrection and before his ascension to the Father. So this is what Jesus is referring to. The problem, though, is that Jesus is not saying all this directly. From the other gospel accounts, we learn that he actually has said such things very directly to his disciples before, but they didn't hear what it was that he was saying. So here he speaks in the form of what would feel to the disciples to be a riddle of sorts, a dark saying a mysterious saying which actually leaves them frustrated for its lack of specifics. In fact, observe how they respond in verse 17. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? 
a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father, you will recall back in verse 10 that Jesus had said, I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. Now notice as they are in a state of confusion and uncertainty here that they're not asking Jesus the question that is most pressing upon their minds. Jesus is fully available for them to inquire of, yet what are they doing instead? The text says, they said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? Look at verse 18. So they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while, we do not know what he is talking about. Uh, you might want to underline the words, we do not know. Those are powerful words. This is another one of those amazing and rare moments where we find men actually admitting that they don't know what someone is talking about. But these men are doing exactly that, admitting their ignorance to each other rather than nodding and pretending like they understood, which I know I've done that before. It is to their credit that these men are not afraid to say to one another, look at the text, what is this he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. That is the beginning of wisdom. Well, they will get at least a partial answer to this question and what Jesus says next, which brings us to the second promise that Jesus gives to prepare his disciples for joy, peace, and courage after their failure and after his death. Let's word it this way. Number two, promise number two, in a little while, your grief will be turned to joy when I see you again. In a little while, your grief will be turned to joy when I see you again. Observe what Jesus does in verse 19. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? So now we learn from what Jesus is saying that these disciples actually wished to question Jesus, but evidently they were afraid to do so. Perhaps they were afraid to let him know that they did not understand his meaning for fear of maybe letting him down. Perhaps they were afraid he might rebuke them for asking a stupid question. Either way, Jesus knows that they wish to question him about what it is that he has said, so he brings up the issue that is on their hearts. Look at his words in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. So there are three promises inside this truly, truly statement of Jesus here. 
The first is that his disciples will experience a depth of pain on the road ahead that will result in them sobbing and wailing aloud in response. To make their pain worse, Jesus gives a second promise here, telling them that the world will rejoice. It's one thing to experience an agonizing tragedy. It's another thing to see your enemies gloating over your tragedy. And that will be the experience of Jesus' disciples in the very near future. From the standpoint of the world, the disciples will be very much alone in their grief as they mourn the loss of Jesus. While they are grieving the loss of Jesus at the cross, the enemies of Christ will be rejoicing over the fact that they killed him. But then look at Jesus' third promise in verse 20, where he says to his disciples, you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. In saying what he says here, Jesus isn't just promising that his disciples will receive a joy that uh, replaces their grief. He's promising that their grief will literally be transformed and turned into joy. And here's what he means by that. And many of us would know this. At first blush, Jesus' death on the cross will seem to be the worst tragedy in the history of the world, a tragedy that will bring mind-numbing grief to Jesus' disciples. But in the end, Jesus will not only be raised from the dead and be alive forevermore, but the disciples will come to realize that his death was the most fortunate thing that could have ever happened because through it, Jesus will bring to them and to the world a salvation that could not have been accomplished through any other means. To make his meaning abundantly clear, Jesus continues in verse 21 and says this, look at the text. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Every woman who has ever delivered a baby will tell you that her labor pains are among the worst pains that she has ever experienced in her life. Can I get an amen? Ladies, in fact, studies show that the pains of a woman in labor are worse than the pains of a man cold. <laughs> just, just to give you men perspective and help you to appreciate that. I was reading my sermon to my wife last night and she said, are you going to say that? <laughs> I did. Anyway, as awful as a mother's labor pains are, once she's given birth, as you all know, to her child, her whole focus now is upon the joy of this new arrival. And she now sees that 
all of her labor was a part of the process that brought about the unspeakable joy of bringing her child into the world. I don't think any of us have ever visited a woman after delivering a child and all she wants to talk about while holding her child is all the labor pains. That's like in the past. And she's caught up in the joy of this gift of a new child. And through this analogy, Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is how it's going to be for you. Yes, you will experience enormous anguish in the coming hours And this anguish will leave you weeping and wailing aloud. But your pain will be in response to events that lead to an outcome that is so joyful that it will work its way backward into your pain and turn it into joy. Your pain will be great but your pain will not be the end of the story. And for the Christian, any pain that we experience, any anguish of heart that we experience in this life is never the end of the story. Amen? Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 22. Therefore... You too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. We know that the disciples were already experiencing grief even on this night as they hear Jesus talking about leaving them and Jesus has been forewarning them that their grief was about to get a whole lot worse But Jesus wants his disciples to know that this grief will be a short-term stewardship. They will have grief now, but he says, look at the text, your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Jesus' words here do not mean that they will never have any kind of sorrow again. What he's promising is, is that after they have come to understand the significance of the cross on the other side of Christ's resurrection, they will be possessed by a deep-seated joy that no one will ever be able to take away from them. And because their joy did not come from the world, there will be nothing that the world could do to take that joy away from them. By the way, notice how Jesus flips the script in verse 22 from what we might have expected. He has been talking about how his disciples will not see him and then they will see him like back in verse 16. So we would have expected him to say in verse 22, therefore you too have grief now, but you will see me again. That's what we would have expected, but instead He turns that around and says, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. Jesus' language points us to the fact that part of what made his post-resurrection appearances so epic and so wonderful 
was not simply the fact that the disciples could see Jesus, but also that in those appearances, Jesus looked upon them and saw them even after they deserted him in his hour of need. In those resurrection appearances, the disciples will know the joy of a savior who didn't ghost them because of their failure, nor does he give them a cold shoulder or refuse to make eye contact with them, but they will instead experience a savior who is willing to look at them in the eye and see them in their failure and in their grief and love them as they are. As D.A. Carson, the commentator says, and I quote, Jesus seeing of them is far more foundational to the relationship than their seeing of him, unquote. And from that day forward, the disciples will always know upon their reunion with Jesus and him loving them and seeing them, they will always know that they are truly seen by Jesus and that he never turns his gaze away from them after they have failed him in some way. And that knowledge will make these men, after Christ's resurrection, the most secure and confident people on the planet. And the ever-abiding, loving gaze of Jesus upon you as a believer in him should make you among the most secure people on the planet as well. And by the way, it ought to dispose us to give this same kind of grace toward those who let us down and who sin against us. This will be a great blessing for Jesus' disciples after Christ's resurrection, but there are more blessings than that for them to enjoy. And this brings us to the third promise that Jesus gives to prepare his disciples for joy, peace, and courage after their failure and after his death. Number three, in that day, I will answer your prayers and reveal the father plainly to you. In that day, I will answer your prayers and reveal the father plainly to you. Observe what Jesus says in verse 23, as he speaks about that future day of joy for his disciples Verse 23, he says, in that day, you will not question me about anything. Especially regarding the things that they were questioning him about in chapter 13 and 14. Questions like, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how do we know the way? And Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Lord, how is it that you will disclose yourself to us, but not to the world Those are the kind of questions that the disciples were asking in chapter 14. But Jesus is saying a day is coming when you won't ask those kinds of questions any longer for what I reveal to you then will be fully understandable to you. We actually see this moment coming to pass in Luke 24 
when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection and then opened their minds to understand how the scriptures had foretold that he must suffer and die and be raised from the dead so that the remission of sins could then be preached in his name. This enlightenment will be all the greater 50 days later when Jesus sends to them the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the result will be that when you read the book of Acts, for example, you will see a very different group of disciples than what you see here in John chapter 14 through 16. Here in John, these disciples are sad and full of uncertainties and questions. But in the book of Acts, they walk in confidence and in understanding and are boldly declaring the truth of Jesus Christ to the world. Here in our passage this morning, Jesus is promising his disciples that they will have this kind of understanding in the days to come. But he wants to promise them even more than that. Observe what he says in the second half of verse 23. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. In other words, if you ask the father for anything that is according to my agenda and my heart's desire for you and shaped by the fullness of my revelation to you, the father will give that to you whether that request is for understanding or for something else that you need to carry out the mission that I am giving to you. Look at verse 24. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Jesus is not rebuking his disciples here. He's not Uh, saying here that the disciples have never prayed to the Father before, but he is saying that they've never prayed to the Father in Jesus' name before. But in this moment and in earlier moments of this very evening in the prior chapters, Jesus is now authorizing them to begin making use of this brand new privilege And he is assuring them that they will receive what they ask for. Look what he says, so that your joy may be made full. This is now the fourth time that Jesus mentions their joy or rejoicing in this passage. And here he makes it clear that he doesn't just want his disciples to have joy, but for their joy to be made as full full as it could possibly be as they experience the joy of answered prayers. And Jesus wants the same fullness of joy for you and for me who know him and believe in him. This is the goodness of the heart of Jesus for us. And Jesus wants his disciples to have a clear understanding of his father as well. Look at verse 25, where Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the father. 
The Greek word translated figurative language speaks of language that is not in the usual manner of speaking. It speaks of a riddle of sorts, a dark or mysterious saying that shadows forth some truth, but not in a way that is always immediately obvious. Jesus is acknowledging here that his earlier saying back in verse 16 was something of an enigma to them. The truth is that even if he had spoken plainly to his disciples, they wouldn't have understood because they had not yet experienced the reality of what he was describing. But Jesus here is promising them that he will tell them plainly of the Father. And later revelation reveals that he did this in three ways. Number one, through his actions of going to the cross and being raised from the dead and appearing to his disciples. And then number two, through his words to them after his resurrection. And then number three, through his spirit, whom he gives to them who will be disclosing the Father and the Son to them for the rest of their lives and ministries. Observe what Jesus says in verses 26 and 27. He says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. In other words, that I will have to pray instead of you, He says, for the father himself loves you. In these verses, Jesus is predicting their future faithfulness in prayer. And he is assuring them that when they pray to the father in his name, Jesus won't feel the need to make request of the father on their behalf in order to somehow persuade the father to answer their prayers. As if Jesus has to persuade the Father to answer the prayers that they're going to pray. Jesus wants his disciples to know that they themselves, just like he has done, that they themselves can come into the presence of the Father and make request of him because the Father loves them personally. As one writer says, Jesus is teaching them here that the father needs no prompting from the son in order to answer their prayers. After all, it was the love of the father for them that initiated the mission of the son in the first place. And this is why Jesus here is saying to his disciples I do not say to you that I will request of the father on your behalf for the father himself loves you. And look at what he says next, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the father. Now notice here in this verse, the two reasons that Jesus gives as to why the father loves them. Number one, because they have loved Jesus. And number two, because they have believed that Jesus came forth from the father. For these two reasons, the father loves them. Now, how do those reasons strike you? 
Do these reasons sound to you like maybe the Father loves them because they first loved Jesus and believed in him? And then the Father reciprocated by loving them? You might think that until you realize that God is the one who caused Jesus' disciples and us to believe in Jesus and love him in the first place. As Augustine says, God would not have wrought in us something he could love were it not that he loved us before he wrought it. And I know if Jonathan Jones were preaching, he would say, I'm going to read that again. So let me do that. God would not have wrought in us something he could love were it not that he loved us before he wrought it. To say it another way, Jesus wants his disciples to know that the Father loves them the way an artist loves a work of art that he or she has created. These disciples love Jesus and they believe that he came forth from the Father for one reason only, and that is because the Father sent Jesus into the world before they loved him. And the Father had Jesus enter into a relationship with them and reveal himself to them, nurturing within them a love for him in return and a faith in him as the Messiah who truly came forth from the Father. And now after three years of being nurtured along so lovingly by Jesus, it is these disciples' faith in Jesus and their love for him that reveal them to be special objects of the Father's saving love. And the Father loves them all the more for what he has wrought in them. And he wants to answer their prayers because people who love Jesus and who believe the truth about Jesus end up asking the Father for the kinds of things that the Father delights to grant. And the same thing is true for you and me. When we come to the Father to make request of him in Jesus' name, the Father delights to hear our prayers and to answer our prayers because he loves us. He loved us so much that he gave us the gift of his son. He loved us so much that he produced in our hearts through his son a love for Jesus and a faith in him. That's all the evidence that we need to know that the Father stands ready to hear our prayers in Jesus' name and to answer them. The Father has already given us the gift of His Son, and He's given to us the gift of faith and love for His Son. What would He possibly begrudge us after that? Jesus is saying all this to his disciples to prepare them for the joy and the peace and the courage that he wants them to have after their failure on this night and after his death on the next day. And there's yet another promise that he gives them to accomplish that. Number four, promise number four, in the coming hour, the Father and I will be together. 
In the coming hour, the Father and I will be together. Speaking of himself as having come from the Father, observe what Jesus says in verse 28. And notice these four assertions by Jesus, the first and the fourth having to do with the Father, and the middle two having to do with the world. He says to them, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. In saying what he says here, Jesus isn't honestly saying anything that he hasn't said to his disciples before, nor is he saying anything that his disciples didn't know before. But by a miracle of God's grace, these words put the disciples' hearts at ease and nudge them toward a deepening of understanding of what they already knew and believed to such a degree that now the disciples feel compelled to utter a confession of faith of sorts. Observe how they respond to this clear statement from Jesus in verses 29 and 30. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech or a mysterious dark saying. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Amazing words coming out of their mouths in these verses. When they say to Jesus, you have no need for anyone to question you, they are in part saying, we realize that afresh, Jesus, that you know our thoughts from afar and can minister to our lack of understanding before we even have the courage or the humility to come to you with a question. The disciples in saying this are not just impressed by Jesus' omniscience here. They're touched also by his gracious willingness to answer the very question that they were afraid to ask him and to speak so clearly to them and engage them. So they say to Jesus in verse 30, by this we believe that you came from God. They've believed what they're saying here prior to this moment, but they know this truth in a deeper way now almost as if it feels like a brand new discovery. This happens to us, right? We keep rediscovering truths we already knew, almost as if we did not know such things before. All in all, this is a bold statement by Jesus' disciples of what they know and what they believe. With conviction, they say to Jesus, we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. And we believe that you came from God. Keep in mind that these are actually the very last words that Jesus' disciples will speak to Jesus before his arrest, at least in John's gospel. 
And it's a beautiful culminating moment where they are uttering this confession of faith in Jesus. Now, observe Jesus' response to their confession of faith in verse 31. The New American Standard says, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Not to discourage you guys, uh, but the Greek of Jesus' words here could be translated as a question, which the New American Standard does here, or as a statement, or even as a command. And we honestly don't know which way to go. And interpretations, if you were to study this out, are all over the place. Some writers view Jesus as expressing doubt about his disciples' faith at this point, as if he's asking, do you really now believe? Expressing doubt about their faith. Some commentators think that Jesus is rebuking his disciples here for their lack of faith, even though they just said that they believe. Other writers suggest that Jesus is saying, is it only now that you are believing? As in, what took you guys so long? Others suggest that Jesus is saying, yeah, you now believe, but you won't be believing in a few minutes when I'm arrested. I personally would prefer to translate Jesus' words as a statement where he's saying, you do now believe. And in this way, understand Jesus to be affirming the integrity and the goodness of what his disciples have just uttered in their confession of faith to Jesus. And why would I lean this way? Well, partly because Jesus' own words in this narrative I think help to frame how we ought to understand what he's saying here in verse 31. Go back to verse 37. Keep in mind the disciples have just confessed that we believe that you have come from God. And Jesus says, do you now believe? Um, Back in verse 27, Jesus, just seconds prior to this moment, looked at his disciples and said, the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the father. So Jesus himself confessed the integrity of their faith in him, even the specific belief that he had come from the father or come from God. So why would he now question their faith just four verses later? when they give voice to that faith to him. Even more, right after their confession of faith in verse 30, that they believe that Jesus came from God, in John 17, verse 8, just a few verses down the road, Jesus will speak to his father in prayer about his disciples, and he will say to the father, They truly understand that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. Now that sounds to me like Jesus received their confession of faith in verse 30 as something genuine 
and good, right? Now, if we do interpret Jesus' words as a question, uh, I would be good with that. I could buy into that if we understand Jesus to be gently chiding his disciples for only now realizing that they believe. Like, is it really only now that you believe? Come on, guys, you have believed prior to this moment. Jesus has seen their faith in him and cultivated faith in them in himself. In the months and years prior to this moment, And he would want them to give due recognition to the reality and genuineness of their faith even prior to this moment. All things considered, Jesus' response to his disciples here in verse 31 is amazing to me because the disciples' faith is, as we all know, so far from what it should be. Their faith is more deficient than they realize as their actions in the very next hour are going to reveal. But Jesus here seems to receive their confession of faith and he refuses to scoff at it. In fact, he sandwiches their confession of faith in him with his own two affirmations that these men truly believe the very thing that they're confessing that they believe in verse 30. But he does give them a dose of reality in verse 32 when he says to them, behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each of you to his own, his own home. And the Greek is just simply to his own, to his own hideout, hiding place, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the father is with me probably within the very next half hour the disciples are going to be abandoning Jesus at the moment of his arrest and Jesus already knows of their imminent failure and he tells them so here he tells them that they will be scattered and that each of them will go fleeing to their own individual places of hiding Yet even though he foretells such failure on their part, he has received their confession of faith and has been promising them many wonderful blessings in this very passage. Blessings that will be theirs to enjoy on the other side of their failure and his death. And though the disciples will be scattered from Jesus in this way, he doesn't want them to be without comfort. Even in that, he says, basically, you guys will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the father is with me. I love this. This is the opposite of guilt tripping. Jesus actually wants this truth to be a balm to the conscience of his disciples in the coming hours when they are ridden with guilt for deserting him. Yes, they will abandon him, yet they can encourage themselves in the thought that number one, Jesus knew we were going to do this. And number two, the father remained with Jesus. Though we were not with him, the father was with him. And Jesus told us that in advance as well. 
Yes, Jesus will experience his father forsaking him on the cross and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it is to the father that Jesus will pray while he's on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And it is into the father's hands that Jesus will commit his spirit when he breathes his last. And it is the father who will raise him from the dead. And this fact brings us to the fifth and final promise that Jesus gives to prepare his disciples for joy, peace, and courage after their failure and after his death. Promise number five, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Observe what Jesus says in verse 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus is assuring his disciples that everything he's been saying to them in this whole passage was so that, look at the text, in me you may have peace, shalom, wholeness, peace with God, and peace within themselves, which involves the absence of fear and anxiety and guilt For Jesus to offer them peace in him means that he himself is at peace with the events that are about to transpire and that he stands ready with a peaceful heart to trust his father through the horrors of the cross all the way to the glories of the resurrection to follow. As for the world, Jesus says to his disciples, in the world, you you have tribulation and how true that is. There is a tribulation coming, the likes of which these men cannot even right now begin to imagine. And even after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, these men will continue to experience much tribulation in the world, just like we do. But take courage, Jesus says, or take comfort, Be of good cheer, you could translate this. Why? Jesus says, I've overcome the world. I've won, he's saying. As Leon Morris, the commentator, says, this statement of Jesus, spoken as it is in the shadow of the cross, is audacious. In fact, it's the most audacious statement that any person has ever uttered in human history. What an amazing thing for Jesus to say right now on the cusp of being arrested and subject to an unjust trial and then killed upon a cross. What an amazing thing for Jesus to say in this moment as all the forces of Satan are right now assembling to destroy him. Here is Jesus standing on the verge of what will look like the most humiliating defeat. And with peace in his heart, he says to his disciples, take courage. I have overcome the world. And when everything is said and done, his disciples will look back and know that when he died upon a cross, That death was his ultimate moment of triumph over the world. 
for it will be through his shed blood at the cross that he will bring salvation to everyone who believes in him and vindicate his right to judge the living and the dead and all of us in this room and to have all authority in heaven and on earth being given to him by the Father. And guys, it is because of his victory at the cross that you and I can have joy, we can have peace, and we can have courage as we face 2024 and beyond. Trust me, there will be a lot of things that happen during this year that will grieve our hearts and cause us deep anguish and sorrow. There will be much to trouble us and to make our hearts sad, and we will be right to lament those sorrows aloud. But at the same time, we can be of good cheer because Christ has overcome the world. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And one day he will return to establish his reign upon the earth. And all of history, even the events of 2024, even the results of the next presidential election are only allowed by him because they serve to usher history to that crowning moment when Jesus returns to establish his reign. He has overcome. As for ourselves, let's appreciate how Jesus predicts the abandonment of his disciples in the very same breath that he's assuring them of peace and encouraging them to be of good courage. This means that Jesus loved these men for what they were despite their shortcomings. In the coming days, whenever these disciples may find themselves haunted by their desertion of Jesus, they could look back on their desertion and remember that Jesus had predicted it and in the full knowledge of who they were and that they would act this way, he still promised them peace. And guys, the same is true for you and me who believe in him. If we are believers in Jesus, we can know that our failures, our sins never take Jesus by surprise. When he chose to set his love on us at the outset of our relationship with him, he loved us then in the full knowledge of who we were and all that we would do, good and bad. He knew in advance every way that we would fail him on the road ahead, and yet he loved us still. From our passage today, we can also appreciate the fact that when we come to Jesus to confess our faith in him, he doesn't belittle our confession because he's aware that we're going to be sinning against him an hour later. Imagine if Jesus did that to us, given all that he knows about us. Imagine coming to him in a sweet moment of fellowship with him and saying to Jesus, 
Jesus, I, I believe. I believe in you more deeply than I've ever believed before. And to have Jesus scoff and say, seriously? Come on, how can you say that when I already know how you're going to mess up later today? Even an hour from now. And a thousand more times after that. But Jesus doesn't do that to us. He receives our confessions of imperfect faith with joy. Because those confessions are a product of his gracious handiwork in our life. And he speaks words of encouragement to us. Because he doesn't just see us for what we are in that moment. He sees what he is making of us and what we will be in the end. What is not to love about a savior like this? If you have never known the joy of genuine relationship with Jesus, I just plead with you this morning to look to him and believe in him and call upon his name and ask him to save you from your sins and from the eternal judgment that you deserve for your sins. Jesus will be delighted to respond to your prayer and save you. Jesus is the only Lord who will never let you down and the only Lord who stands ready to love you and forgive you whenever you let him down. And he is the only Lord who knows in advance all the ways that we're going to let him down. And so he speaks words of comfort to us in advance so that we will have those words of comfort to lift us up after we fall. It's for all these reasons that in a day that is riddled with fear and anxiety and hopelessness, that you and I who believe in Jesus have great cause for joy and peace and courage in him. Let's pray to the Lord right now and thank him for this. Lord, what a good Savior you are to us, how you are able to nurture along so tenderly our weak and frail faith and like a delicate little flower that it is sometimes, Lord, you you take such good care of us and you, you nurture along our faith just as you're doing with the disciples here and you know they're about to fall flat on their face and be riddled with guilt and before they even fall, you're speaking words of comfort to them to prepare them. They will be thinking, man, what a, what a fool I was to tell Jesus, yeah, now, now I believe that you are sent from God. What a farce that confession was. But then they would remember your words in verse 27 that, no, Jesus actually said 
that we love him and that we believe that he came from God. And we, we even heard Jesus speaking to his father and telling his father that we understand and we know and believe. You are a master of sweet comfort, Lord. If there is any that is in this room today, Lord, that are believers in you, but they are in a really bad place right now, such that they think you won't even make eye contact with them and that you are shocked. May they find comfort in what we've seen in this text. You are not shocked and surprised you knew of their failure. And you come to them even this morning and you meet eyes with them and you see them and look upon them with eyes of love and you speak of your grace and comfort to them to draw them out of their sin and back into your arms and may they come running into your arms today. And for those who don't know you, Lord, may this be a day of salvation for them. There's no other relationship they can have with anyone else that can begin to match the glory of a relationship with one such as you, Lord Jesus. And I think all of us who know you, Lord, are thinking, man, we, we need to tell people about you. Lord, help us to be faithful to speak to others of one so great as you, the salvation and the relationship and the grace and the forgiveness and the love that can be found in you that is unshakable and that nothing in this world could ever take away. And help us to walk in this love through the days of this week and give glory to you. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus and all God's people said.